Our thoughts go out to uh, Pastor Calvin and their family this morning. They're working through an illness. And uh, I got a call Friday morning, way before I got out of bed. So it went to voicemail. And uh, so, you know, I had a lot of angst in my heart uh, the night before. And it didn't help <laughs> after I got the voicemail. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's good angst. I think it's angst where I'm w really struggling with the spirit and I'm really trying to explore and understand what the Lord wants from me. And more than anything, it helped me to understand my own reluctance and my own fear. And uh, so, you know, I, I resolved to not say no to pastor. <laughs> so here I am. There might be two people in the world whom God has used more than my wife to reveal himself to me. Now that sounds a little odd and before I ask her to, you know, pen her own systematic theology volume, I, I should probably explain what I mean. She always tells me that my laundry never make it into the hamper. I always shoot hoops with it. And as you might guess, I always miss. And in her words, they're like, you know, little soldiers at boot camp trying to climb up a steep uh, rock uh, cliff, right? Um, but the way that she brings it up is really endearing to me. It's always with a sense of warmth and humility. You know, and there's, there's a lot of humor in there, yeah, but it's not like she's angry or that she's cynical. Uh, she's a gentle wife. She clearly takes Matthew 18, 22 very literally, okay? She hasn't forgiven me seven times, 70 times. She's probably forgiven me way more than that. I think that's 400, 400, 490, 490, something like that. Um, through her demeanor and patience and devotion, she's taught me a lot about what a godly woman is and how I'm supposed to treat her. By the way, speaking of that and all my screw-ups, you know, she's never made me sleep on the couch. That's a saint right there. And... From here on out, I'm gonna to need to tread lightly so I don't end up sleeping on the couch for the first time tonight. Um, but let's rewind about 25 years. We're both in college. She was at UIC. I was in Champaign, and I snuck back every two weeks or so to, to come and see her. And as I, as I reflect on those early years and who I am and what I've accomplished in life, it always struck me that there's nothing I can boast about that I would deserve her. Come on, you know I'm not being modest. This is demonstrably true, right? I, I wasn't a great student. I wasn't on the football team. In four years of computer science and much, much angst, I never learned a computer language, a programming language, right? Most upsetting at all, they even picked Keanu over me to play Neo. This is an inside joke. And what about Shirley? 
She was a good student, but her pa passion for art and her passion was for art, and that would take maybe two more decades to come to fruition. Anyway, after eight years on campus, I came back to Chicago with five figures of debt and a contract to fix printers. That was all I can find. The point is, neither of us would be considered wise or influential or of noble birth. In fact, those were dark days and our future was in doubt. But God brought us together at a small group where we met some amazingly godly friends who remain precious to us today. Um, at the outset, I still remembered what I prayed. Now listen to this. I asked God to make Bible study palatable for me. That's what I asked. And what I meant was, God, I can't be bothered to come on Fridays because that's the night I usually take Shirley out for dinner and a movie. But I'll do you a favor, and I'll try it once or twice, right? If you really want me to stay, please don't make it lame, because I am not singing Kumbaya. Was I patient? No. Was I kind? No. Did I have any love for God? I don't think so. Was I arrogant? Yes. Yet for some reason that still eludes me, I was not turned into a pillar of salt that night. Looking back, I had no grounds to expect a bountiful family life. Remember Psalm 117, one to two says that if the Lord doesn't build the house, the builders labor in vain. If I had no relationship with the Lord and he doesn't build my house, my house won't be built. I brought nothing to the table but my blind rebellion. So what he made of us when there was no us, what he made of me through the covenant of marriage, I will always boast of. Knowing him, knowing a grand and transcendent purpose, picking up breadcrumbs from the Bible every day, I will boast of that. The privilege of being in a union with someone God, in his wisdom, has set aside for me from before time. That is demonstrably perfect for me, by the way. I will boast of. Praise God that his ways are higher than ours. That takes me to my first point. Marriage is a covenant from the Lord. Marriage is a covenant from the Lord. If you have your Bibles, can you please turn, your, turn them to uh, Mark 10, 6 to 9. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will live, leave his father and mother and be unified to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God is the one that joins a man and a woman in his covenant. And from there, in becoming one flesh, 
you will flourish. You will procreate. You will fill the earth and have dominion over it. You will even get federal tax credits for filing jointly. (laughs) So it is not from the beginning a human ritual or tradition. This matters because of marriage is not our invention. We cannot mold it in our fallen human image at our whims. We don't have the right to make it whatever we want it to be. Only the all-wise creator could have designed the ultimate plan for all the pieces that he made, right? That he made. And those pieces are you and me. If you want to know how marriage is defined, there's only one intellectually honest way to do that, and that is to ask the one who made it. So, since marriage is from the Lord, what does he expect from us in a marriage? Well, everyone who has been to a wedding knows 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, etc. We just... Um, We just heard that, right? Now, the first thing that I noticed when studying it is that the word love is not used to describe an emotion. It's much more than that. Emotions come and go, but the word love, as used here, Paul personifies it to show conviction. This is what love does. Now, this passage has nothing to do with the feeling of love. It has nothing to do with romantic love. But I think it's okay to see it that way because it is still true that romantic love does those things. It's just way more than romantic love. As a matter of fact, sorry to tell you, it wasn't even written with marriage in mind. It is conviction brought on by a vision. The first thing that God, the creator of marriage, expects is that we copy how God, how Jesus exemplifies love. Jesus is patient. Oh, how he led a a dozen brats fighting over who gets to sit on his right hand. Jesus is kind. The Bible says he was often moved with compassion over the loss and the afflicted. Jesus is not jealous. Can you imagine Jesus claiming a prominent chair at the synagogue? Jesus is not easily angered. He is so meek that the Bible tells us that a bruised reed he will not break. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects. Who loves like that? No one else I know. So love is a a conviction in 1 Corinthians 13. Now let me highlight two unique aspects of a biblical marriage that flows from the fact that the marriage covenant is from God. If, if you have your Bibles, please go to Genesis 2 for me. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I shudder to think how the first few years with their daughter Karen could have decimated our marriage. Karen had always been the sweetest little girl, and none of this was ever her fault. But in the beginning, Shirley and I did not see eye to eye about how to raise her, and it brought up some painful memories for her. We fought daily, almost two years. We said hurtful things. We talked to friends. We went to counseling. And ultimately, the Lord reminded us of first principles in our marriage, that we must be on the same page. We must be unified. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So the first aspect we inherit from the fact that marriage is from God is that he tells us that the two become one flesh. This one is really odd. This, is, this one is just odd because for most of history, in, in pagan cultures, in, in Roman, Greek, you know, whatever, in, in pagan cultures, marriages don't talk like that. What is one flesh? Pagan marriages are pragmatic. They're about aligning economic interests and political interests and ensuring the lineage of, of the continuation of their lineage. Love, if it even existed, was the cherry on top. And being outside of God's purpose, there was polygamy, there was concubinage, and there was things like young girls being wedded to old men, and that's just for starters. We must not lose sight of the fact that one of the most important reasons you and I look on these practices, which were at one time common around the world, as evil, that, that we know them to be evil, that they're not legitimate forms of marriage, is because we are still swimming in these waters of vaguely biblical principles in America. So what is one flesh? God, in his infinite wisdom, saw that what best echoed his design in the image of God, the Imago Dei, was a union that combined the unique gifting of one male and one female. This is so important that six times the bond between man and woman were mentioned in the first two chapters of Genesis. This means the symbolic unity Shirley and I needed to remind it of in order to stop quarreling. It means physical intimacy. It means a single spiritual vision for the marriage. It means a deep conviction to serve and honor and love each other with no regard to self. One flesh illustrates the depth of this bond, that it is not to be taken lightly, that when one member of the union is mistreated by the other, both face the consequences because they are joined in a sacred union. It means that if the bond is broken and the unity is destroyed, neither come away unscathed. To illustrate this, we look at Ephesians 5, 
28 to 30. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Christ nourishes and cherishes you and I, being members of his church. Let those who are under a marriage covenant do the same for their spouse, because it becomes an act of loving yourself. You cannot hate your own flesh and live. Now let's take a look at the next distinctive. And I get this from Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. There is an odd extra imperative here that God gives just to the husband. And I think this is of critical importance for young men and young women. And what is the imperative? He is to love his wife. He is to love his wife. Wait, what? She doesn't have to love him back? No, that's not what it's saying, right? Um, How should the husband love his wife? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church in a unique way that is not entirely reciprocal. The church is not called to give herself up for Christ, but only Christ for the church. By the way, to be clear, this is not saying we can't be martyrs for Christ, but Christ saved our souls from the due penalty of our sin, and that's not what we're able to do. So Paul is saying, husbands, look at Christ's example and protect your wife. Be her covering. Put her needs before yours. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And be ready to lay your life down for your bride. Paul offers no such imperative for the wife. Now, I'm going to change course a little bit. Marriage is from the Lord, but marriage is also for the Lord. Marriage is for the Lord because it magnifies his glory in at least three ways. It's probably many more, but it's time crunch. The union of marriage mirrors the union of Christ and the church. According to theologian John Piper, marriage exists most ultimately to display the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. Number two, marriage is for having children. And God commands us to fill the earth with little image bearers. Therefore, marriage is for multiplying God's kingdom to his glory. And number three, this I've been struggling with for most of the last 24 hours. And it is Paul's vision in Ephesians 5.25-27. Paul's vision of marriage is of a bride made radiant and perfect for the groom. 
just as the bride is the glory of man, the church, made holy through Christ, glorifies her God. So, I'll read Ephesians 5.25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The command here for husbands is to follow Jesus and simply love our wives sacrificially. The rest of this passage describes Paul's vision of the culmination of God's plan for our redemption, that of a grand wedding banquet, where we will finally get to truly see and know our Savior face to face. Why does this belong in a passage about marriage? Because his vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb is closely tied to how he sees the purpose of marriage for you and I. It is difficult for the Christian to exaggerate what an impossibly selfless and undeserved, but yet desperately needed, feat that God has accomplished on our behalf. We are created beings that due to our lust for autonomy from God, we choose to have nothing to do with our creator and we will face the penalty for that rebellion, which is death. God has forgiven the repentant at great cost, that of the life of the only begotten son. But he didn't stop there. He professed a desire to have a relationship with us now that we're freed to draw us under his wings, that we would be protected and loved, and that we would no longer be called rebels, but sons and daughters of God. The honored title of adopted sons and daughters of Christ. But he didn't even stop there. Just like in the, new, just like in the, the parable, he is throwing the largest celebration ever to proclaim to the universe that he is re, re, reclaiming his prodigal children, the church, to the glory of his name. Ultimately, the church is to be presented to Christ, the Lamb of God, as a radiant and holy and blameless and unblemished bride. At the end of the current age, all the saints would be united to Christ in the grand celebration. God wants us to see our earthly marriage in light of this vision, in light of this glorious event that will take place in the future. It is what all of redemptive history is converging toward. The unity and selfless love that is symbolized in our marriage gives weight to the unity and selfless love of Christ to his bride, whom he has redeemed and sanctified. Therefore, marriage is for the Lord because it serves to magnify his glory. At that point, we would be fully reconciled and all our tears will be wiped away and we will know him fully even as we are known.
the church. Whatever issues it had during Paul's time, whatever heresies that we're facing now, ultimately will be fully sanctified by Christ himself. You and I, if we persevere, we will also partake of a glowing and radiant and unblemished church of Christ, actually worthy of him only by his sacrifice on the cross. And in cleansing us through the washing of water with the word, in presenting us to Christ in a worthy way, that testifies to who he is. This is the vision Paul wants us to consider. It might at first be humbling. It might be offensive. But I submit to you, it is a picture of our ultimate hope in Christ. This is how marriage is for the Lord. It is made to be an echo of future glory for him and his bride, the church. Where does this leave Cornerstone? Paul, the same author who wrote most of the scripture that that we've been hearing today, tells us that marriage is not for everyone, including him. Not everyone can picture one flesh. Not everyone wants children. Not everyone sees the vision that Paul does. Probably many of us don't. Not everyone can accept the hard sayings in their particular season of life. I've fought many doctrines in the Bible, tooth and nail, as I'm sure many of you have, and I continue to. But we don't, we resolve to never shy away from the whole biblical truth. And we ask and God will give us clarity. As Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. A biblical marriage is not Christianity 101. It is difficult and requires much prayer and maintenance. But it is instituted by God for many of us. In a few months, Shirley and I will be celebrating 20 years. And I've been tried often and I've failed often. And I'll be really, really frank with you, in my bones, I feel capable of destroying our bond every day in some foolish and faithless act, but God has granted me the grace daily to persevere. So let us set Jesus as our standard of perfect love. Let's think of Jesus whenever we go to a wedding and we read 1 Corinthians 13. Because that is who Paul is talking about. Jesus is our standard of perfect love, both in marriage and more importantly, in, our, in, in general, in our, in our life. Let us all remember to beseech Jesus daily, but let us not be dismayed when we inevitably find ourselves falling short. Grace is desperately needed by all of us 
in marriage, and in life. And thankfully, it abounds in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Um, let, me, let me pray for us. Father, I ask you for your spirit to move among us, to give us new hearts that is directed towards you, to fix our gaze upon you and your precepts. Because I'm convinced that humanity has no appetite for sin if we truly knew you. Because all idols will fall when set against your surpassing glory. Father, bless our marriages, bless our singleness, give us unity, give us hearts that are soft and malleable and yet convicted. As St. Augustine said, for thou hast formed us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. In Christ's name, amen.